Welcome to A Look Ahead. We're delighted you've decided to join us. We study the Sabbath School lessons prepared by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this particular series is on the book of Ephesians. Now you remember that Ephesians is a little book, six chapters, and we have 14 lessons. So you can figure out that we're, we're now in lesson 12 for September 16. We must be getting somewhere over into less, up into chapter 6, and in fact we are. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our wonderful Father, we thank you for the advice. It's so carefully written out by Paul under those very different circum- difficult circumstances. Someday we hope to see in the panorama of the whole great controversy these stories as they were, as they were lived out by Paul and others. But now, Lord, help us to take their words as best we can understand them and apply them to our lives and our day as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In this lesson, we will talk about the great controversy over God's character and form of government. Who is on what side in the great controversy? Sometimes we're confused by this question. Jim? From the Bible Study Guide. Blurry-eyed, the servant of Elisha stumbled out of the lodgings and sees an alarming sight, a large, well-equipped and hostile army with troops and horses. Troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Speaking of the prophet Elijah, he stammers out of the news. Stammers out the news. Stammers out the news along with his harried question, Oh, sir, what will I do now? Let me interrupt here, right? I hope you're all familiar with that story in the Old Testament. But this this place, Dothan, where they were, was a relatively small town. Now, it had a wall around it, but here he looks out, and he can see the entire, I think this was the Syrian army, if I remember the story, I'm quite sure it was, in fact. The entire Syrian army had snuck up on them in the middle of the night. And he wakes up in the morning, blinking his eyes, and here the place is surrounded by the Syrian army. So what does Elisha do? Go ahead. He responds, don't be afraid, for there are more on our side than on theirs. A response that fails to register in the face of his servant. Elisha, pulling him close, prays for him, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The prophet's prayer is answered immediately. The servant steps to the ramparts again, but this time the veil between the seen and the unseen lifts. He now sees not an army, not one army, one army, but two. The Lord opened the eyes of young man's eyes, and when he looked upon, excuse me, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Second Kings wow. six fifteen to seventeen. How would that make you feel? Just think about it. You know, you think, okay, there's not a chance in the world we're dead. This army is just we're either dead or slaves. Okay. Horses and chariots of fire. And suddenly you see horses and chariots of fire. Wow. In our passage for this study, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, which we have already studied in a couple lessons, Paul was talked about, talking about a warfare and the weapons that need to be used in that warfare. These are not the usual weapons that people use in physical warfare, although he gives them names that sound a little bit like that. How many Christians, and I would ask how many Adventists, understand the great controversy? 
What are the issues in the Great Controversy? Why is it such a big deal to God? Could you describe the Great Controversy to someone who had no idea about it? And could you do it in such a way that she or he would understand it? You ready to try your hand at that? Well, let's read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 again. I'm going to click on it here. Carrie, want to read some of that for us? Finally, build up your strength in union with the Lord and by means of his mighty power. Put on all the armor that God gives you so that you will be able to stand up against the devil's evil tricks. For we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. Uh, where are we? So put on God's armor now, then the evil day comes. No, let me. When the evil day Yes. And when the evil day comes, you will be able to resist the enemy's attacks. And after fighting to the end, you will still hold your ground. Okay, now I'm going to interrupt for a second. Is Paul tell us, telling us that we need to get all this armor lined up in preparation for a future battle? Or do we need this armor right now for what's going on right now? Both. Both. Okay, that's probably... The future in Paul's day, it could certainly be now. Yes. So it could be both. Yeah. Okay, Carrie. So stand ready with truth as a belt tight around your waist, with righteousness as your breastplate, and as your shoes the readiness to announce the good news of peace. At all times carry faith as a shield, for with it you will be able to put out all the burning arrows shot by the evil one. And accept salvation as a helmet, and the word of God as the sword which the Spirit gives you. Now, think about an example. How did Jesus respond to the devil when he tempted him? Get behind me. Well, and not only that, he quoted scripture, didn't he? Yeah. No, you're right. Go ahead. Uh, do all this in prayer, asking for God's help. Pray on every occasion as the Spirit leads. For this reason, keep alert and never give up. Pray always for all God's people. And pray also for me, that God will give me a message when I am ready to speak, so that I may speak boldly, no, boldly and make known the gospel's secret. For the sake of this gospel, I am an ambassador, though now I am in prison. Pray that I may be bold in speaking about the gospel as I should. Okay. <clears throat> Do you understand each part of the armor that Paul describes? Do you understand how each part is to be used? We need to understand, we need to use all the armor that God has provided to protect us and to fight this life and death battle. Now, without looking back at the passage, a belt, a breastplate, a helmet, shoes. What else? Shield. A shield. A sword. Is that all? Sword. Jennifer's head. Which one? Sword. Oh yeah, sword. True. 
So how did Paul vision each one of those things? What was the purpose of the belt? Their, their clothes were quite loose normally. So if you were trying to fight a battle, it would easily get in the way. So part of the purpose of a belt was to keep, you know, your heavy-duty clothes from, from getting in your way as you're trying to wield your sword. Okay? So have you ever tried to figure, okay, now, how does that apply to the Christian life? Now, a sword, we can understand how that word of God might work in the, and, the, and the breastplate and the, and the shield. We can maybe understand those. Some of the other things, the shoes. Prayer. Yeah. Okay. Well, there was no doubt in Paul's mind about how difficult this battle is going to be. He said we need to be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. In verses 10 and 11, we had to put on a special belt, breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, and sword that Carrie just read about. And most important of all, when it comes time to go into battle, we are to pray. Maybe this is why they say there are no atheists in foxholes. You've probably heard that expression. There are a number of very interesting battles described in the Old Testament. And I think about being in a foxhole. I mean, think about what's going on in Ukraine right now. Here you are. You're trying to hide down in a trench somewhere. And you know that any moment, someone could lob a a grenade or even shoot something up like this. And that thing comes right down in you. And there's a huge explosion, you know, right next to you. you're, You're just history. That's just... There are a number of very interesting battles described in the Old Testament. God gave specific instructions about how these battles were to be conducted. Might that be a clue for us? These are some very interesting stories. Let's look at them carefully. Consider these messages given by God to his human advocates in preparation for various battles. Let's take these one at a time. Gordon, I think... Deuteronomy 20, verses 2 to 4. Before you start fighting, a priest is to come forward and say to the army... Men of Israel, listen. Today you are going into battle. Do not be afraid of your enemies or lose courage or panic. The Lord your God is going with you, and he will bring you victory. He will give you victory. Okay, notice this story happened about 1400 B.C. Okay, Jennifer, you want to take the next one? Sorry, I was going to say they did it in World War II. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. In Judges chapter 7, verses 15 to 18. When Gideon heard about the man's dream and what it meant, he... Now, let's just talk about that very quickly. He, Gideon was a guy that... He, God spoke to him. He was hiding in an olive press trying to thresh his wheat. And I was hoping nobody would be looking because it was the wrong time of year to be pressing olives. So, and he says, you mighty man about her. Huh? Me? <laughs> I'm, I'm from the least tribe. There's nothing about me, this mighty man about her. Well, God says, I've got a job for you. And he goes out there, and he goes with 300 men, and they're looking over this huge army, the Midianites and some others, looking over this huge army, and God says, I, let me give you a little help here. Of course, he had the, we had the... 
the wet fleece and the dry fleece first. And now he's out there, and so he goes down into the camp, and what does he hear? The guy in the, in the says, well, this big loaf of bread is coming in and it's rolling over us, and its name is Gideon. You know, how many clues do you need? Okay, go ahead. So, when Gideon heard about the man's dream and what it meant, he fell to his knees and worshipped the Lord. Then he went back to the Israelite camp and said, quote, Get up! The Lord is giving you victory over the Midianite army. He divided his 300 men into three groups and gave each man a trumpet and a jar with a torch inside it. He told them, When I get to the edge of the camp, watch me and do what I do. When my group and I blow our trumpets, then you blow yours all around the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon, from the Good News Bible. Okay. Now this is, the other one is around 1400 B.C. Now this is 1150 B.C. That's 250 years later, right? Okay. Now we come to Second Chronicles 20, 13 through 20. This one happened about 860 B.C. Is it possible that we could fight that way? Right, let me just go ahead and... I didn't put this here. All the men of Judah with their wives and children were standing there at the temple. The Spirit of the Lord came upon a Levite who was present in the crowd. His name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah. He was a member of the clan of Asaph and was described from uh, uh, descended from Asaph to Mataniah, Jael, and Benaiah. Jehaziel said, Your Majesty and all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, the Lord says that you must not be discouraged or be afraid to face this large army. The battle depends on God, not on you. Attack them tomorrow as they come up the pass at Ziz. You will meet them and at the end of the valley that leads to the wild country near Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Just take up your positions and, and wait. You will see the Lord give you victory. People of Judah and Jerusalem, do not hesitate or be afraid. Go out to battle, and the Lord will be with you. Then King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face touching the ground, and all the people bowed with him and worshipped the Lord. I mean, they're getting ready for a battle, and this is what they're doing. The members of the Levite clans of Koath and Korah stood up and with a loud shout, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Early the next morning, the people went out to the wild country near Tekoa. As they started out, Jehoshaphat addressed them with these words, People of Judah and Jerusalem, put your trust in the Lord, Yahweh, your God, and you will stand firm. Believe what his prophets tell you, and you will succeed. After consulting with the people, the king ordered some musicians to put on their robes. They were on sacred occasions and to march ahead of the army singing, Praise the Lord, his love is eternal. When they began to sing, the Lord threw the invading armies into a panic. The Ammonites and the Moabites attacked the Edomite army and completely destroyed it. And then they turned on each other in savage fighting. When the Judean army reached the lower, uh, reached the tower that was in the desert, they looked towards the enemy and saw that they were all lying on the ground dead. Not one had escaped. How's that for a way to fight a battle? Yeah. Was, yeah. would, would that be one of the stories that you would exclude if you were um, abridging the Bible? <laughs> I think this story needs to be there. Okay, this story happened around 860 B.C. So now we've got another 300 years. From 1150s. Is, is it possible we could fight that way? 
Why did the king and the people believe that man? I mean, imagine you got this big, huge crowd. All the people are there, the wives and the children are there. And the man stands up and said, don't worry, God's going to win this battle for you. How did they know? Had they previously proven that he was a reliable prophet? How should we decide on whom we can trust? And remember the key text is Second Chronicles 20.20. 20, Believe what his prophets tell you and you will succeed. Do we believe those words from Jehoshaphat? Do we trust all of God's prophets, even the modern ones? The modern one, Ellen White? And I have to tell you a quick story about Second Chronicles 20.20. 20. I was traveling with a friend, fellow theologian, theological student from Walla Walla, I had graduated, he was a year behind me, so he was a junior. And this was, I had just graduated, this was summer between going from, coming from college and going to, to Loma Linda. And we had made arrangements to work in a factory in Germany for three months. And on our way across the country, we had driven with some students going back home in their car. We, we had about a day and a half in New York City before we got on the airplane to fly on to Europe. And it was a Sunday. So we said, let's go to this famous church in New York City. I won't mention it by name. This famous church in New York City, and we'll hear a sermon. And so we went to this church, and it was a rousing sermon, a great sermon, on Colossians 20.20. And we said, what? Colossians 20.20? There are 20 chapters. This is a huge congregation in a very famous church. Well, he was quoting Second Chronicles 20.20. And the whole thing, too, when he got all done. We wrote them a letter when we got to Europe, back to them and said, uh, was this a mistake or what happened here? And they, we got a letter back from them that said, we hope the next time when you're in New, you're in New York City will come and visit us again. <laughs> that was the only thing they said. So do you think that he quoted... This was intentional. He knew that there were a lot of people in his congregation that didn't believe in the Old Testament. And he figured very few of them had, were... were literate enough in the Bible to, to know. If you just quote Colossians, they know about Colossians. 2020, okay, fine. And he used this verse. Okay, so now, moving on. Second Chronicles 32, 6-8. Jim. He, that is King Hezekiah, placed all the men in the city under command of army officers and ordered them to assemble in the open square at the city gate. He said to them, be determined and confident, and don't be afraid of the Assyrian emperor or of the army he is leading. Now, let me interrupt for just a second. Assyria has, a hundred years before this, completely wiped out in the, the northern kingdom of Israel. They're, they're camped just a short distance from Jerusalem. And this is what Hezekiah is saying, okay? We have more power on our side than he has on his. He has human power, but we have the Lord, our God, to help us and to fight our battles. The people were discouraged by these words of their king. Good News Bible. People were encouraged. Encouraged. Did I say discouraged? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, so this this story took place approximately 700 B.C., so now we've come down another 160 years. Okay? Nehemiah 4, 14, and 19 and 20. Nehemiah saw that the people were worried, so I said to them and their leaders and officials, Don't be afraid of our enemies. Remember how great and terrifying the Lord is, and fight for your fellow countrymen, 
your children, your wives, and your homes. I told the people and their officials and leaders, the work is spread out over such a distance that we are widely separated from one another on the wall. If you hear the bugle, gather around me, or God will fight for us. Good news Bible. Okay, so that last one was around 700 B.C. Now we're all the way down to 440 B.C. So that's, what, 260 years later? Something like that. Okay, so that's a huge... We're talking a, a thousand years of history. When people... And we, I've talked about this many times. Uh, every time they went out and fought under God's direction, they had these marvelous victories. And when they went out and fought without God's direction, they had terrible defeats. Hmm, I wonder if we should learn something. Well, that goes clear back to right after the, shortly after the Exodus. Well, that's what I just quoted yeah. to you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that they wanted to do it their way. Yeah. Do it my way. <laughs> what should Paul's warning that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against supernatural enemies teach us about where, where our only hope of victory is? Please note that these great stories of faith were scattered over hundreds of years of Old Testament history. God can work with any group of people at any time if they trust Him and rely on Him. Could we be a part of the winning army in the final battle of the great controversy? Well, one would hope so. We have no human means to fight against supernatural enemies. We know that. Our only help must come from the supernatural help. Carrie? Paul makes bold use of these themes to exhort believers to be, one, active in pursuing the church's mission, two, attentive to the unseen dimensions that impact their lives and wellness. Witness, no, wait a minute. Witness. Three, cognizant of the divine provision for their success. And four, always alert to the importance of unity and collaboration among believers. Yes. Okay, could we succeed, as did the ancient armies of Israel, by depending fully on God's plan for our lives? Or, or, or since our battles are so different, mm-hmm. uh, we can't depend on those guidelines? Why is God... I mean, there's a limited amount of space in Scripture. And yet here are these... I just... These are just some of the stories. Yeah. There are many. Why did God put those stories in there? Are we aware of what it means to fight a spiritual battle against supernatural forces? Have we had any experience in doing that? What kind of help have we needed? The Greek words describing the kind of helpers we need in the battle and this battle are used to describe both the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is often translated as comforter. And what do you remember the story about the comforters in the Greek army? These are guys who are, and the Greek army fought with a phalanx. We know a phalanx is fingers, three fingers like this. So they would have people down, crouched down with the, the, in the front row, and then behind them would be other guys closely with longer spears, and behind them were other guys with even longer, uh, not spears, but sore, um, spears, I guess they'd call them. And so, if you got past the first guys, then the next guy, and then the next guy, and, and this was, this was, 
Alexander is a great method, and I mean, how can you stand up against that? So, okay, go ahead, Gordon. From the Bible study guide, the church's strength lies in the almightiness of her risen Lord, the captain of her warfare, said G.G. Findlay in the epistle to the Ephesians, and as quoted in the Bible study guide for Monday. How can we be sure that we have Christ fighting with us or for us? Abraham Lincoln is famous for saying, quote, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Earlier, in, and of course some of you know about the song, that quote, that slightly misquotes that, but it's a great song. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul described us as being building blocks in the church with Christ as a chief cornerstone. Ephesians 20, 2.20. How does that fit with the warfare, morti- warfare motif? Paul was not confused about the fact that all of us are born selfish. We want to do it our way and follow the natural tendencies of our own bodies. Paul made it very clear that the power needed for being successful in this battle is not human power, but supernatural power. However, that power is readily available through Jesus Christ, and there are several passages. Is there a way to be sure that we are solidly on his side? Think of how many TV evangelists are claiming that they are on God's side and while teaching things that are contrary to the Bible. I mean, okay, I think Jennifer, you're next. In the Bible study guide, while the initial command announces Christ as active in providing strength to believers from Ephesians 6.10, all three members of the Godhead are engaged in strengthening them for spiritual combat against evil. God, the Father, makes his own weapons available as the, quote, armor of God, from Ephesians 6, 11, 13, and compare that to Isaiah 59, 17. Earlier, Paul has identified the Spirit as active in strengthening believers. Paul prayed that God may grant you, quote, to be strengthened with power through the, his Spirit in your inner being, end quote. This is from Ephesians three sixteen. Here, it is the Spirit who issues the sword. Quote, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, from Ephesians 6.17. Also, believers are to pray, quote, at all times in the Spirit, Ephesians 6.18. Paul wishes his hearers to understand that the triune God is fully engaged in equipping them to battle against these evil powers. From the Bible Study Guide, Monday, September 11th. Yeah. Are you aware of times when you have been helped by Christ or by the Holy Spirit? Are you put, uh, are, are we to put on Christ's armor now? Not for a current battle, but for a future battle? I asked you that question earlier. Do you think of evangelism in the gospel story as being like a military battle? The good news is we know what the outcome will be. And where do we find that? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. For this reason God raised him to the highest place, talking about Christ, above and gave them him the name that is greater than any other name. And so in honor of the name of Jesus, all things in heaven, on earth, and in the world below, all beings, I'm sorry, will fall on their knees, and all will openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? When is that going to happen? At the third coming. At the third coming. And who's going to be bowing on his knees at the third coming? Satan. Satan himself. All beings. 
1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 58. So when that this takes place and the mortal has put, been changed into the immortal, then the scripture comes to death is destroyed, victory is complete. Where death is your victory? Where death is your power to hurt? Death gets its power to hurt from sin and sin gets its power from the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and steady. Keep busy always that you're in your work for the Lord, since you know that nothing you do in the Lord's service is ever useless. And Second Corinthians, well, could you take those on, Jim? Second Corinthians chapter two, two verse eight. Thessalonians. What's that? Second Thessalonians. What did I say? Corinthians. Corinthians. I'm sorry, I'm going blind. Then the wicked one will be revealed, but when the Lord Jesus comes, he will kill him off with the breath from his mouth and destroy him with his dazzling presence. Okay, you want to do the next one? Romans 16, 2, and God, our source of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Okay. Paul was not foolish enough to think that this great controversy will conclude in a single battle. He recognized that there will be a long-term war, in fact, the longest war in history. While at times enemies may be succeeding, finally, God will win. Are we aware of times when we have opened our minds to allow Christ or the Holy Spirit to transform us? Are we always aware of times we have yielded to, are we also aware of times we have yielded to Satan's temptations? How can we strengthen the one and diminish the other? Paul reminded us in Ephesians 1 that God has already proven his ability to win. He raised Christ from the dead, set him at the right-hand side of God on the throne in heaven. Wow. However, not everyone has understood the issues, nor is everyone ready to make his or her final decision as to which side she or he will choose, God's side or Satan's side, the loving way or the sinful, or the selfish, greedy way, others first or self first. Now, when you put it that way, it's a little easier to see how people will not always agree on which side to be on. Okay, Carrie, Ephesians 4. Each one of us has received a special gift in proportion to what Christ has given. As the scripture says, when he went up to the very heights, he took many captives with him. He gave gifts to people. Now, what does he went up mean? It means that first he came down to the lowest depths of the earth. So the one who came down is the same one who went up above and beyond the heavens to fill the whole universe with his presence. It was he who gave gifts. He appointed some to apostles, to be apostles, uh, others to be prophets, others to be evangelists, others to be pastors and teachers. That's from the Good News Bible. I wish Paul had told us how each one of these Apostles, prophets were supposed to help in fighting the battle. We could probably figure it out if we work on it, but. Probably kind of the same way you deal with the war in heaven. Yeah. It's all dealing with, with philosophy and, and concepts. Paul was aware that Jesus arose after the crucifixion, took with him a host of believers who were ready to enter heaven. However, they were just a foretaste of what 
uh, he plans to do in the future. Are we getting prepared? How has the great controversy impacted your life? In order to understand Paul's exhortations about the battles we face, we need to understand a little more clearly how war was conducted in his day. Okay, Gordon. From the Bible Study Guide, <clears throat> we must understand Paul's military metaphor in the context of ancient of the ancient ba- battlefield. What did it mean to, quote, stand, end quote, as from Ephesians 6, 11, and 13, and 14 verses? Does the verb suggest a defensive-only posture? Battle speeches included in the writings of... Thucydides. Thucydides. One of the great classical authors of battle literature highlight three successive actions that must occur if a side is to be victorious. One, soldiers must, quote, close with the enemy, end quote, which means that they march to meet their foes. Then, two, they must attack and, quote, stand fast, end quote, or stand our ground, end quote, fighting hand-to-hand with their foes. And finally, three, they must, quote, beat back the enemy, end quote. So you all can read that in his Greek document, the Peloponnesian War. Okay? The key moment of an ancient battle occurred with the second of these three actions, when the Two, two opposing phalanxes came crashing together in a, quote, terrible cacophony of smashed bronze, wood, and flesh, which ancient author Xenophon, Xenophon. Xenophon refers to as that awful crash. That's from Victor Davis Hansen, The Western Way of War. Standing firm, holding one's ground at, at this strategic moment, was the great challenge of ancient battle in the close combat that would ensure each side would seek momentum for, quote, the push, end quote. Paul's call to arms reflects combat in which soldiers were bunched together, giving and receiving hundreds of blows at close range. This is confirmed by Paul's depiction of the church's battle against its foes as a wrestling match and in his use of intensive forms of the verb to stand in verse 13, in the form that you may be able to withstand in the holy, in the evil day. This is no relaxed stance. To stand, then, is to be vigorously engaged in battle, employing every weapon in close order combat, a point obvious from the military imagery of Paul's in Paul's earlier exhortation to be found, quote, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I find it interesting to think back. Uh, I've heard this in, back in the days when we were still talking about, we were still involved in the Vietnam War and even further back, the Korean War. He says, God has helped us to equal, to, to level the playing field. Now we don't have to, I mean, imagine if we had to fight, for example, China in a hand-to-hand battle like this. I mean, there's four times as many of them as there are of us. More. Yeah, even more. Yeah, what, what would he do? But now, someone sits back, they send up a drone, set, you know, set, send up a drone, it looks over there, okay, they're right over there, okay, here's the coordinates, push a button, 
completely different way of fighting war. Okay, Gordon, when you want to finish up there. Hebrews 12.4 In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, from the English Standard Version. That's pretty, pretty serious standing up, isn't it? Does this verse help us to understand Paul's comments about standing? There are many Christians who believe that we can be once saved, always saved. However, these passages suggest that we have a daily battle to fight. Which is it? In order to be successful in a battle, it is best by far to understand something about the enemy's tactics and who it is you're fighting against. In Ephesians 6, 10-20, the enemy and his tactics are described in several terms. Okay? The devil's evil... Uh, Jennifer, I guess that's yours. Just look at some of those different expressions there. So in Ephesians 6, 10-20, the enemy and his tactics are described in several different terms. Quote, the devil's evil tricks. Quote, wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world. Quote, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. End quote. The enemy. And, quote, the evil one. Revelation 12, 8-9 adds that he is, quote, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, and, quote, the dragon, and that he has earthly forces on his side. I've also put deceiver of the whole world. Yeah. Good. yeah. That, that is, uh, when you deceive, you're mixing truth with error, mm-hmm. and people aren't all that discerning, unfortunately. Okay, so what kind of weapons does the enemy use? Well, deception. Yeah, lies, deceit, natural passions, etc. There was no question in Paul's mind about what we should be doing right now. From our Bible study guide, Paul does affirm that all evil and supernatural powers are subjugated to Christ, Ephesians 1.20. However, in any battle, it is never a good strategy to underestimate the forces on the opposing side. Paul warns that we do not just confront human enemies, but, quote, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, end quote, Ephesians 6.12. Led by a wily general, the, the devil, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the wily general is the devil. However, while we must be on the alert against our powerful foes, we need not be daunted by them. God is present with us in the battle, Ephesians 6.10, and has supplied us with the finest of weaponry, his own armor, the armor of God, Ephesians 6.11. Compare Isaiah 59. He has placed at our disposal his truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation, and the Holy Spirit. With God's going uh, before us and our being equipped with from head to toe and the armor he has supplied, we cannot fail. Wow. That's some pretty daunting words, isn't it? Jim, you want to take up Ephesians 6 there? Uh, Chapter 6, verses 13 to 17. So put on God's armor now. Then when you... Excuse me. Then when the evil days come, you will be able to resist the enemy's attacks, and after fighting to the end, you will still hold your ground. So, stand ready with truth as a belt tied around your waist, with righteousness as your breastplate, and as your shoes, the readiness to announce the good news of peace. At all times, carry faith as a shield, for with it you will be able to put 
out all the burning arrows shot by the evil one and accept salvation as a helmet and the word of God as the word, excuse me, as the sword which the Spirit gives you. Good news Bible. Then First Corinthians 15 verses 23 and 24. But each one will be raised to the, in the right order. Christ first of all, then at the time of his coming, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. Christ will overcome all spiritual leader, rulers, authorities, power, and will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Also from the Good News Bible. Then okay, why don't you let Carrie sure. pick up there? Second Thessalonians 2.8 Then the wicked one will be revealed. But when the Lord Jesus comes, he will kill him with the breath from his mouth and destroy him with his dazzling presence. The Good News Bible. What should the reality of these supernatural evil powers against whom we ourselves are utterly helpless teach us regarding why we must grasp hold of the Lord Jesus? who is not only greater than these powers, but has already defeated them. Wow. Mm-hmm. From the writings of Ellen White, Gordon? Our work is an aggressive one, and as faithful soldiers of Jesus, we must bear the blood-stained banner into the very strongholds of the enemy. Quote, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. If we will consent to lay down our arms, to lower the bloodstained barrier, the bloodstained banner, uh, to become the captives and servants of Satan, we may be released from the conflict and the suffering. But this peace will be gained only at the loss of Christ and heaven. We cannot accept peace on any, on such conditions. Let it be war, war to the end of earth's history rather than peace through apostasy and sin. Okay. From Review and Herald in 1888. So how long is this war supposed to go on? The end of this earth's history. There's no rest. Okay. Jennifer? From the Bible study guide. How does Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 relate to the book of Revelation? The passage exhibits the same basic view of last-day events, or eschatology, as the battle motif in the book of Revelation, and see some Revelation chapter 12 and other chapters and verses. In both, the people of God are under attack by the enemy, who is in, quote, who is, quote, in heavenly places, and, quote, is active and powerful in the present aeon, or age. In both, the people of God are encouraged by, quote, the picture of the future aeon, Further, quote, both scenarios explicitly point to the final battle when the enemy will be conquered completely, after which the new aeon will be established forever. A new age in which the, quote, final glorious state of the people of God and the, quote, eternal doom of the enemy will be evident. See Eschatology of Ephesians. So... If you study the Bible very carefully, you will see and you'll recognize that, as we have seen, there are passages from the Old Testament you can pull in that just fit with passages from the New Testament, and then you can take passages from the New Testament and they fit with things in Revelation. 
However, we talk about the the final battles involving us in preparation for the final days, we need to remember Revelation 12. That's where the whole great controversy is spelled out in just a few verses. And then it goes on in more detail in Revelation 16, Revelation 19, and Revelation 20. What is the most effective way to beat back the forces of evil? Remember what Jesus said when he was faced with the devil? Carrie, you said this earlier. Go away, Satan. Go away, Satan is right. Matthew 4, 10. Okay? It's an interesting way that the Good News Bible put it. Mm-hmm. We're used to get behind me, Satan. Yeah. Which is a slightly different quote. Okay, where are we? In the last chapter of his letter, Paul reminds the Ephesians and all of us that Christians are not simply saved people who are massed in the fold of Jesus. On the contrary, Paul insists that once Christians join the kingdom of the Lord, they take part in its defense and promotion. They are soldiers of the kingdom of God, but, but they are not soldiers in the sense that soldiers of the Roman army are, nor are they um, militarized rebel militias. Their enemy is spiritual, and so are their armor and weapons. It is a cosmic battle, starting in the heavenly places by, quote, the devil, end quote, and other world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness, Ephesians 6.11 from the New American Standard Bible, against the throne of God. So let's just review in the last few minutes we've got here. What is this battle over? And what's the question? This is the great controversy which is over God's character and government, how he runs his government. And what does Satan want to, what does Satan claim way back in the beginning? He can do a, he can do what? He says God is arbitrary, unforgiving, harsh, cruel. And Satan claims that if we just let everybody do what they want to do, it'll be fine. That was Satan's way of running things. The selfish way. And what would happen if we did that? (laughs) That's what we've got right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's been going on for thousands of years. Yep. A real mess. The source of the power and strength of Christians does not reside in their own muscle, armor, weapons, battle skills, and strategies. Rather, their only source of power is, as always, in the Lord. They fight as they've as their Lord fought, by crushing evil and worldly powers uh, with the power of love and justice that comes from the cross. But the cross is not theirs, it is the Lord's. It was the Lord who obtained the victory over the power of evil at the cross. It was the Lord who resurrected and ascended to the heavenly places. It is by virtue of this victory that the Lord, Jesus, gives us his, gives his church, his resurrection, his life and blessings. Ephesians 1, his gifts, Ephesians 4, and now his armor, Ephesians 6. The Christians fight, clad in Christ's armor, for a battle that he already has won. I always, when I read something like that, I think about the Battle of New Orleans. You know about the Battle of New Orleans? That's the battle that was fought quite some time after the end of the war? That's the battle, a fierce, fierce, fierce battle fought two weeks after the declaration of peace had already been signed. Mm. Yeah, terrible. The was so slow, was slow yeah. and they had no idea. Yeah. Okay, now, Christ died more than 2,000 years ago, so why isn't this war over? 
Well, look at the example of Martin Luther and this, his battle against the Roman Catholic Church. And many of you are familiar with this story. We're gonna, we're gonna take it sort of piece by piece and just review some of the key things that happened. Uh, where are we? Carrie, I think you're the first, you take the first paragraph there. Uh, by 1521, both enforced by Paul's theology. First, that the justification of the sinner is based on God's grace and accepted by the sinner by faith. This idea translated into the Protestant Reformation principles of sola gratia, sola fide. Okay, let's stop for a second and talk about that. So, Luther is preaching, you don't get saved by putting your money, giving your money to the church, by buying indulgences, by who knows what, all those different different things are concerned, that was basically being propagated by the Roman Catholic Church at that point in time. He says, your salvation depends on your personal relationship to God. First of all, His grace that comes down to you, and then your response called faith. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Second. Second, the scriptures constitute the self-sufficient revelation of God and that the Bible, not the church council or pope, is the only and final rule of faith and authority in the church. This idea was encapsulated into the sola scripture, a principle of the Reformation. Just in case some people are not familiar with those Latin expressions, what does sola scriptura mean? Scripture only. Scripture only. That's the, it has to be the final ultimate authority. Okay, so Gordon, you want to take on the next section? Well, these ideas were increasingly sh- uh, shaping up in Luther's mind. Johann Tetzel, Tetzel's sale of indulgences near Wittenberg inspired Luther to rise against the flagrant corruption in the church by publishing his famous 95 theses in, on October 31, 1517. Okay, let me interrupt for a second. What's an indulgence? I will pay ahead of time yeah. so that the sin isn't held against me. I'll automatically be forgiven. You yes. intend to, that you, the sin you intend to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It might be unintentional sin, too. Yeah, I'm just it's mostly. Covered all as many bases as you intentional. can. <laughs> okay, go ahead. However, instead of witnessing a wave of deep reformation in the church, Luther was confronted with a tsunami of attacks aimed at breaking and silencing him. By the time of the 1518 Diet of Augsburg, Luther already regarded Scripture as the sole basis for faith morality and theology. However, caught between his growing popularity in Germany and high pressure from the papacy, Luther agreed in 1519 not to publish his views if his opponents would refrain from attacking him. Okay. Jennifer? But when in 1520 he came under repeated attack, 
Luther decided to let his calls for a profound reformation of the church go fully public. Wow. Luther published a series of pamphlets as a result. In these pamphlets, the reformer used the scriptures to debunk first or number one, the papal claim to absolute authority over the church and world through its hierarchy. And two, the church's claim to control God's grace through its sacraments and priesthood. Instead, Luther proposed that the church needed to return to the principle of the priesthood of all believers who have direct access to God and his grace through their faith. Okay, so what happens to that whole system if you say everyone has a direct relationship to God? You have an economic breakdown if you're a hierarchical organization. Yeah. Well, the Church of Rome responded via Pope Leo X's 1520 bull. What's a bull? We're not talking about a cow here. Edictor. Yeah. Say it again? A papal bull, an edict. Edict. It's supposed to be absolute law. No, No recourse. This is the way it is. And that was entitled... Exerge Domine, in which the Pope identified some 41 alleged theological errors in Luther's writings. Luther was excommunicated in the same year and his books were ordered to be burned. Luther responded in kind. When the papal bull reached his place in December of 1520, he burned it publicly. <laughs> the, I mean, you can imagine, that that was uh, yeah. direct you know, against the ultimate authority. The tense situation turned into an open war. Charles V, the new emperor, and do you remember what what kind of emperor he was called? The Holy Roman Emperor. It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't emperor. (laughs) Anyway, uh, attempted to bring order in his domain by summoning Luther to the Diet in the spring of 1521 in the imperial free city of Worms, close to the city of Frankfurt, where Luther would be required to answer for his views and his actions. The reformer was to travel and attend the Diet under the protection of Frederick of Saxony. And fortunately, what do we know about Frederick of Saxony? He was kind of a protector of... Uh, he was a very good friend of Luther's. He was the founder of the University of Wittenberg and a defender of Luther. Luther was well motivated to fight for God, as illustrated in his exclamation before traveling to Worms. I will enter Worms under the banner of Christ against the gates of hell. That's quoted from Roland Banton. Here I stand a life of Martin Luther. Well, the story's not over yet. Okay, Jim, it's your turn. Luther arrived in Worms on April 16, 1521, and was ordered to appear before the Diet at 4 o'clock in the afternoon of the following day. On April 17, Luther was brought before the Diet. The presider proceeded directly to question Luther as to whether the books arranged on a desk were his and whether he was ready to recant the views written in them. Realizing the cruciality of the moment and its impact on the future of the gospel, Luther hesitated and requested additional time for consideration. His request was granted, and he returned to the Diet on April 18 at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. 
He appeared, his, excuse me, his appearance and voice differed from the day before. He was well composed. His voice sounded strong and confident. After acknowledge, excuse me, after acknowledging that the books piled up before him were authored by, by him, the reformer explained that he could not recant the ideas in those books because they were falling into three categories, each of which held truths that he could not recant. Number one, proclaiming the general Christian teachings. Number two, denouncing the corruption of the papacy that was <laughs> oppressing the German nation. And, the, and number three, exposing the corruption of certain individuals. For this reason, Luther requested to be shown his errors by scripture and not by ecclesiastical mandates. Oh boy. Big trouble here. Okay. The presider rebuked Luther for claiming the scriptures as the final authority, pointing out that the church would be exposed to shame if it were found in error after so many centuries. For this reason, the presider then challenged Luther to give a direct answer to the question of whether he was renouncing his works and his teachings. Luther, ringing his voice, proclaimed the famous answer, since when, since then, your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convinced by the scripture and the plain, and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do any otherwise. God help me. Amen. This is from Bainton. The famous statement. We need to close. Our kind and loving Father, we thank you for this rounding uh, testimony from from Luther and encourages us to think that if that, the devil was going to do all that he did at that point in time, imagine what he will do when he approaches the very life and death for him battle at the very end. We can't even imagine what kind of methods he will use and trying to kill anyone who doesn't agree with him. May that day come soon, but we may be, may we be prepared is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm.